Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So first off, remember that next week, next Wednesday, we will not be having a midweek service here at GCA because next week is the Gladeville Conference. The Embracing the Truth Conference is the actual name. And so if you want to go to church on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or a Tuesday night or a Friday night, or Wednesday during the day, or Thursday morning, or Friday during the day. If at any point during the day, next Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, you decide you should really be at church, well, come up to Gladeville, because that's where we'll all be gathering. I hope that you took away from last week's introduction that the Psalms collectively are important historically and prophetically and theologically, but that is really demonstrated by how often New Testament authors quote directly from the Psalms. They obviously held the Psalms in very high esteem. They obviously felt that what was written in the Psalms was vitally important and was the Word of God because, as we're going to see tonight from Psalm 2, the New Testament authors use this psalm to develop their Christology. They used it to develop their sense of God's absolute sovereignty over time and history. They used it to demonstrate the validity of Old Testament prophecy. So New Testament authors leaned on the Psalms very heavily. And as I mentioned, we're going to go through Psalm 2 tonight, but along the way, we're going to look at some of the ways that that psalm was also used by the New Testament writers. So let's start by thinking about the nature and the character of God. If you grew up in Sunday school, if you grew up with parents who taught you to pray or took you to church, your earliest development of a theology, an understanding of God, who he is and what he's like, was that he was sort of like your grandpa in heaven, and you could ask him for things, and he would watch out for you. And so you just have this general sense of God being primarily an amiable fellow. In Psalm 2, we're going to see that God is also sarcastic and mocking, and that he holds people in derision. And that helps us to get a more expansive understanding of what our God is really like. Because he is certainly gracious and kind, long-suffering, ever-loving toward his people. But those who are his enemies, he is brutal to them in the truest sense. And that's going to be demonstrated in this psalm as well. So we're going to get theology out of this psalm. We're going to get Christology out of this psalm. 
We're going to get prophecy out of this psalm. We're going to get very Calvinistic theology out of this psalm. And it's only 12 verses long. And all of that is packed in there. It starts by saying, why are the nations in an uproar? And why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Well, that fits perfectly with our understanding of the depravity of human beings. Here are human beings devising something that's completely empty, completely pointless. Human beings in their supposed wisdom and their collective egocentric opinion of themselves oftentimes devise things, come up with plans that in God's view are just completely vacuous, totally empty. That's what vain means. It appeals to our ego, but in the end it's, it's nothing. And yet the nations, the kings of the nations, the leaders of the nations are devising their own plans. What we're going to find out is the plan they are devising in their head is let's throw off God. We don't need God. We're powerful. We're rich. We're the leaders. By the way, there is so much said about kingship and about national authority in this psalm that it's often referred to as a majestic psalm because it says so much about majesty and it compares all the kings of the earth and their plans for what they're going to do with the king of heaven who has the only plan that actually succeeds. So this entire psalm is a contrast between the wisest of us, the richest of us, the most powerful of us, the people with all the gold who get to make all the rules, who think, well, I don't need God. I am completely self-sufficient. Look at how good I'm doing. And God in heaven laughs at them. Why are the nations in an uproar? And why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart. You know what fetters are. If you're trying to control a horse, you put a fetter on them. If you're trying to control an animal, you put a fetter on them. It's a way to control And they don't like the idea that God is in control. They don't like the idea that God is on his throne. They don't like the idea that God can hand out a law and then expect people to follow it. And so they say, let's cast off those restrictions of God. Let's live according to our own ideas, our own plans, our own vanity. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their binding, their cords from us. It's real, real easy to look around at the world right now and see that that is happening right now. How many of you watched the State of the Union last night? You saw it on display right there. But you see it on display every single day even because of the political arguments, the political debates that are going on in our nation right now, debating about whether gender is fluid, 
debating about whether marriage is one man, one woman, debating about whether you ought to be able to murder babies, debating about whether gay folks should be able to marry each other. All of the primary debates going on in the world right now are all debates that run contrary to the word of God. Why? Because the leaders of the world right now are saying in unison that they don't want any more of the Lord and they don't want any more of his anointed. And so they're saying, let us tear those cords and fetters apart, those things that bind us, those opinions of God. Let us throw all of that off and let us do whatever it is we want to do. Okay, so you may be familiar with verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's because it is quoted in Acts 4. Turn to Acts 4 for a minute. Now, certainly among us who believe in the sovereign grace of God, who believe in the sovereignty of God, there are just certain phrases that we're really familiar with that we use as proof texts so that we can say, but look, this is how God works. That proves that our theology is biblically valid. And one of those phrases is the fact that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews were all gathered together in Jerusalem to do whatever your hand determined in advance to be done. Well, what is the basis of that argument, though? If you just take that verse out of its context, yes, it's a very Calvinistic-sounding verse, but what is the basis for that declaration? The basis of it is what we just read out of Psalm 2. Let's read out of Acts 4. And I'm interested, of course, in verse 25, but I really need to start reading before that because Peter and John have already healed a lame man in the temple and then started preaching that it was Christ who actually healed this man. And so the leaders in Jerusalem, of course, wanted them to stop preaching like that. And so they were jailed for a little while, and then they were threatened, and then finally released. So if we start in verse 21, it says, And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they could punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man who was healed was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And when they had been released, they went back to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, You did say, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Okay, now, they've just quoted from Psalm 2, but they're also now going to use that as the basis for what they're about to say. Because they started by saying, okay, David, David's a prophet, King David, our father. He was the servant of God, and he already said, he already predicted, he already prophesied that the Gentiles were going to rage, the people were going to devise futile things, and the kings of the earth were going to take their stand 
and the rulers were going to be gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So knowing that that was already written in the psalm, they then come to the conclusion, for truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. How did they know that it was already predestined to occur? Because it was written in the Psalms. Since David had already prophesied it, and then it happened, they point out that, well, God already said this was going to happen. God already said through David that when Messiah came here to the planet, the nations, the Gentiles, were going to join in with the Jews, and they were all going to fight against God and against his Christ. They were going to reject him, and that's exactly what they did in accordance with the very prophetic nature of Psalm 2. So they use that as the basis to develop the theology of God's predestination, God's foreordination of exactly what happened to Jesus. Knowing that, knowing that David already wrote it, and then they themselves saw it in real time, and then were able to conclude that God had predestined this to happen by the very fact that he prophesied it through David. They then come to the conclusion, well, then, if God's in that kind of control, make us more bold. Increase our ability to get out there and preach him even more. Even though we've been shut up in prison and even though the leaders in Jerusalem have told us to stop preaching that, based on the fact that you're a predestinating God and that you've proved it in real time, verse 29 says, and now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and to signs and to wonders that take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. So their faith was built up, and they were emboldened by the fact that Psalm 2 already told them what was going to happen to Jesus when he got here to the planet. It's remarkable. When we read the word of God and it says things like the kings of the earth are going to devise these vain plans. And then as I've already listed some of them, sure enough, the kings of the earth devise their vain plans just like the Bible said they were going to. That ought to make us bolder. That ought to give us more confidence because we're seeing in real time the word of God coming true. Back to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. And God in heaven, says verse 4, becomes very worried and upset because his creatures are not doing what he thinks they ought to. No? No? Didn't read that one right? No. He who sits in the heavens 
laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Can you see it from God's perspective? I mean, God Almighty, God who's already been identified as the maker of heaven and earth, the one who's in charge of absolutely everything, sees his measly little egocentric creatures up on their hind legs, shaking their fist at him like they have some authority and saying, we're, we're going to throw you off. We're done with you. We don't want to be bound by you anymore. Does anybody get to make that decision? No. Nobody gets to decide, you don't get to be God anymore. So God's natural reaction is to just laugh at them, how pathetic they are. I've used this example before, but if you're sitting down to eat, let's say, and you discover that there's an ant crawling on the picnic table that you've sat down to eat at, are you worried? Are you scared? No, what you do is you go, flick. There, go away there. That's what God's doing. He's looking at people in their egocentricity and their prideful arrogance and they're devising their own vanities. And he laughs at them like, you poor, pathetic, stupid little thing. And he scoffs at them. Like, who do you think you are? More importantly, who do you think I am? And what do you think our relationship is here? But boy, that shows you the arrogance of human nature. One more time, you see pride on demonstration here. Pride on parade that human beings actually think that it's up to them to decide whether God has any authority. The very fact that atheists or agnostics, cynics, the debaters of this world, the only reason that they exist is because of God. I mean, he's the one who made everything to begin with. And yet those people in their arrogance, in their self-sufficiency, in their sense of self-worth, in their vanity, deny him. That's insanity. To think that you were self-created, self-generated, self-deciding. The first time that any human being, by their own decision-making, does not get sick and die, then I will admit that maybe there's something to the human will. But since everybody gets old, gets sick, and dies, some don't even have the time to get old. Some just get sick and die. And yet, those creatures, in their self-will, in their phenomenal ego, think that they're in charge? You can see why God laughs at them. Here I am just trying to describe the situation, and you're all nodding at me like, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Imagine from God's perspective, God who was there when there was nothing, when the earth was without form and void, the one who spoke, let there be light. And as I like to point out, there was still nothing, but it was just really well lit. He just said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he made everything else. And he did it, and he knows he did it. And then some 
earthly creature who gets to be here on the planet for their three score and 10 thinks they're going to compete with him, you can see why God would scoff at them. You can see why God would laugh at them because it's just so phenomenally ignorant. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then, because of their arrogance, because of their vanity, and because of his reaction to them, he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. By the way, if God wants to terrify you, what kind of bag of tricks does he have? I mean, this is the God who made everything and can destroy everything. This is the one who is going to burn the whole planet with fire. This is the one who created a place called outer darkness that Jesus said, the worm never sleeps, the fire is never quenched. This is the one who created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. And yet in the book of Revelation, we read that humans end up there too. If God wants to terrify you, What's he got to work with? The maker of everything is so against the arrogance of people who speak against him that he will then speak to them in his wrath, in his anger, and absolutely terrify them by his fury. When you were a kid, you may or may not have had a dad like mine, but my dad had the ability look at us sideways, start undoing his belt, and we kids got terrified. (laughs) We kids, all five of us, scattered because dad's on the loose, uh, and he's mad, and get out of the way. I had a great dad, but he was a strict disciplinarian, and I was terrified of him, and he's just a human. He's dead now and couldn't change anything about that. And I was terrified of him. Imagine if the God of ages decides he's going to terrify you because he's furious at you. And there's no escape. And there's nowhere you can go because he's omniscient, omnipotent. He's everywhere all at once. He's absolutely sovereign. There's nothing you can do. There's no way you can escape. And he is going to punish you for your arrogance in thinking that you could throw him off. That's a scary picture. But, God speaking, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is in contrast to how it began. The kings of the earth, the leaders of the world, the nations, the peoples were devising their own vain things And the kings of the earth were taking their stand against the Lord's anointed. God's response is, I have installed my anointed, my king, upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people plan. It doesn't matter what people in their vanity and in their arrogance devise doesn't matter. 
It does not matter if the whole world, collectively, every single one of us, everybody who was ever born, the billions and billions of people who have ever been on planet Earth, if we all collectively, all at once, agreed that there is no God, changes nothing. If we all collectively say Christ does not exist, he's still going to end up on his throne because his father is going to glorify him regardless. And so God replies after terrifying these people in his fury. He replies, but as for me, I have. It's a done deal. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. By the way, that's a prophetic verse. That is the culmination of the Davidic covenant. That a descendant of David's is going to sit on David's throne and rule from Jerusalem. And even though to this very day, not only are there atheists and agnostics who say, no, that doesn't even exist and there is no Jesus. But then there are also theologies within the church that say that God is not going to establish a kingdom where Jesus sits on his throne in Jerusalem And the answer to both of those groups is, I've already done it. I've already installed my king upon Zion, my holy city. God's already done it. It's already established. It's already been declared. The very fact that prophetically David heard it from God, wrote it down, that's the end of it. And it doesn't matter how you argue or what your theology or what your theological outlook is, it doesn't matter. The same way, it doesn't matter. If the whole world apostatizes, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if people argue from doctrinal, theological, eschatological standpoints that no, Jesus is not going to sit on a literal throne in Zion. He's not going to sit in Jerusalem ruling the nations. God says, regardless of what all the rest of you think in your vanity, I've already done it. I've already established it. I have already installed my king upon Zion. That's Jerusalem, the hill of Jerusalem, my holy mountain. Verse 7. So I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Remember, this is David writing, as we already saw from the book of Acts. This is David who is writing, and he might be saying in a very personal way that the reason he is king in Jerusalem is because God has already said, you are my son, and I have established your throne. But what it's saying in the larger sense is that because God has already installed his king, his anointed, his Messiah. Because God has already done that, then God can reply to that one and say, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord because he said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So consistent with everything we've read out of the book of Isaiah previously, that the nations, the Gentiles, are all going to flow to Jerusalem, to Zion, because that's where Jesus the king is sitting on David's throne. And it's already established. God has already said it. It's already going to happen. You don't get to argue with it. He doesn't care what you think. But then in the New Testament, 
New Testament writers pick up that verse and that phraseology in order to establish their Christology. Who is Christ? What has he done? What is his importance? And what is his authority in the heavens? That's all addressed via that verse. So we're going to start in Hebrews 1, if you want to turn there and look at the first place where theology is developed out of Psalm 2, verse 7. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten you. I love the book of Hebrews. It's really, really difficult to just jump into the middle of something because the writer of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, has all of this Old Testament background to work with, and so his arguments are really elongated and are really complex. And so it's really hard to just jump into the middle of one of those. I I always want to explain the surrounding context because the surrounding context is, well, brilliant. So I'm going to start reading at Hebrews 1, verse 1. And we'll read 13 verses. Watch what he does. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they have. Okay, so now he's going to launch into an argument about the superiority of Jesus over angels, because there was a tremendous amount of angelology, worship of angels that went on in the early church. And so his argument here is Jesus is above the angels and he's going to make his argument by going back repeatedly to what's written in the Psalms. So Psalms becomes the establishing document on which he's going to build his argument with one exception, which I will point out. His first argument is Jesus has a more excellent name than the angels For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Well, that's Psalm 2-7. So he starts his argument with that. The very fact that God is recorded as saying in the Psalms a thousand years ago, the very fact that God said, you're my son, today I've begotten you, his first argument is, when did he ever say that to an angel? Well, that makes Jesus superior to the angels. And again, now he's going to quote from the Old Testament again. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's actually 2 Samuel 7.14. That's the one outlier where he actually went to one other prophetic bit of the Old Testament. And then returns to the Psalms again. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all of the angels of God worship him. In other words, the greater is worshipped by the lesser. And if the angels are told to worship Christ, 
That means Christ is better than the angels. That's Psalm 97, 7. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, by the way, that was Psalm 104, 4. But by contrast to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, he calls the Son God, your throne is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So his kingdom is going to be established in righteousness. You have loved righteousness, you have hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. That means that he's superior to all the angels. By the way, that is Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's Psalm 102, 25 to 27, and then he wraps up with, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalm 110, verse 1. So the entirety, with one exception of this whole argument, this Christological argument about the superiority of Christ over every angelic and every other heavenly being is based on what's written in the Psalms. That's how important the Psalms were to the New Testament writers. Go over to Hebrews 5 for a minute. By the time you get to chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews... He's now arguing that Christ is superior to every earthly priest. And he's going to make his argument based on the Psalms. And specifically based on Psalm 2-7. Hebrews 5, starting at verse 1, I'm just going to read six verses. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, because of that weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, and so also for himself. So, so far the argument is, Priests and high priests that are taken from among men are also sinners. And not only do they sacrifice for the people, they have to sacrifice for themselves because they're filled with their own sinfulness, ignorance, weakness. No one, says verse 4, no one takes the honor to himself, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. The first high priest was Aaron. And his argument so far is Aaron didn't sign up for the job. Aaron didn't come to Moses and say, I'll do that high priest thing. Instead, it was God who told Moses that Aaron was going to be the high priest. And so the argument is that nobody 
in and of themselves takes the honor of the priesthood to themselves. In fact, it was even God who decided that the tribe of the Levites were going to be the ones who were going to serve in the temple and that they were going to get a land allotment as a result. So again, it's all God's choice of who gets to approach him, who gets to serve him, who sacrifices on behalf of the people, but even they, as they're doing it, are sinners themselves, and so they are given over to weakness, and they ultimately die. Verse 5, so also, the same way that God determined who the high priest was going to be, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he's reached back to Psalm 2.7. That same one is the same one who also said, just as he says also in another passage, which is Psalm 110.4. Psalm 110 is another one of those psalms that gets quoted a lot in the New Testament. And he said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we don't have time to get into that in any depth, but... Our verse-by-verse preaching of the book of Hebrews is online in our archives and completely separate from the lineage of Moses and the lineage of Aaron and the lineage of the Levites was this completely separate lineage of Melchizedek. And God determined that Jesus was going to be a high priest and, and he was of Judah. He wasn't of Levi. So according to the qualifications that God had already laid out in the law, Jesus didn't qualify to be a high priest. And so God also says that he's going to establish a new order that only he can qualify for. He's of the order of Melchizedek, and he's a high priest forever. How does he establish that? How does he base that argument? How does he prove that's true? By quoting from the Psalms, and specifically from Psalm 2-7. So now go back to Psalm 2-7. We're going to start at verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, And I will certainly, I will surely, no question about it, I will surely give the nations, the Gentiles, all the people to you as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. For the folks who argue that the kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom in heaven, and that he's already sitting on David's throne at God's right hand at this very moment, ruling and reigning in this kingdom to come, you will notice that the language, the very specific language is, not only that God will give him the nations, but they're the nations of the earth, and the very ends of the earth are going to be the possession of Christ when he is established in Jerusalem upon Zion, God's holy mountain. The language couldn't be any more specific. I don't know why people want to debate it. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. And you shall break them. 
We already know, Old and New Testament, that every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Things on earth, things below the earth, everybody's going to admit that Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. And there are going to be rebels who are going to do that. And how is he going to cause them to do that? He's going to break them with a rod of iron. In other words, he's not engaging in a pillow fight with them. He's not winning them over with his extreme kindness and shepherd-like lamb-carrying qualities. He's going to win them over because he is king of kings, lord of lords, absolute ruler, and to anybody who doesn't bow, he breaks their knees. He'll break their pride. He'll break their vanity. He is going to cause them to get down in front of him and do obeisance, which is what the rest of this psalm says. You're going to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Uh, Have you ever had? This might just be one of my guilty pleasures. Have you ever had an old bowl, an old dish, an old plate, something that you don't need anymore, and just for the sheer joy of it, you break it? Okay, that might just be me, but hammer in hand, I will go after old dishes and old cups, just for the sheer joy of watching them. Anyway, that's the picture. The same way that I have the power and authority over inanimate objects, to break them if I want. That's the same relationship that is described here between Jesus and all humankind. Not only is he going to break them, but he's going to shatter them the same way that you can shatter clay pots. Because human beings are repeatedly referred to as clay pots in the Bible. Just something that the potter made on the wheel out of clay. He is going to shatter people like earthenware. And now the attention returns to the kings, who previously, we read, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and say, let us tear off their fetters and cast away their cords from us. Okay, so you kings, you arrogant kings, you vain kings, you who want to cast off the authority of God, here's God's response to you. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. In other words, wise up, show some wisdom, show discernment, take warning, you judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence. That word reverence there means with a sense of fear, a sense of awe. Not slavish fear, but recognizing who he is and what he's like and getting on your face before him because you you understand the majesty of him, the power of him versus the powerlessness of yourself. And the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth are being told to take warning, you judges of the earth, and worship the Lord with reverential fear and rejoice with trembling. 
not just rejoicing in God, not just recognizing, oh, it's God and he's real and heaven and all these spiritual things are real. But while doing that, trembling the same way that you're supposed to tremble at the word, doing it with a kind of reverence before God where you realize that if he wants to at any point, he can flick you off the way that we flick off an ant. He can get rid of you completely and make you go into outer darkness eternally. He is the judge of everybody and everything, and he is the absolute power, right, and authority to do any of that that he wants. So you and your arrogance, you and your pride, get down in front of that one. But then, because they wanted to throw off the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed, which is Jesus, the Son, the next instruction is do homage to the son. Now, that's the NASB rendering. The King James says, kiss the son. Nashak is the word in the Hebrew language, and it literally means kiss. And that concept of kissing to show reverence is carried over into the New Testament. The most common word translated worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. Pros, toward, and kaneo is kiss. So when we read the word worship, what's really being said is kiss toward. This word, this nashak word, means to kiss the ground in front of your superiors. In other words, your face is in the dirt in front of your superiors. And the one they are instructed to get down in front of and kiss toward is the very son they wanted nothing to do with. And why will they kiss toward him? Why will they worship him in reverence and fear? Because number one, he's going to break them with his rod of iron. And number two, God has already established him on his throne upon Zion, the holy mountain. And since he's already established, and it's already done, and it's already written down, the New Testament authors could look back at it and say, there's the demonstration, there's the proof that God has already predestined all of these things. So we can conclude that if God says, I have established my son, and your job, you kings of the earth, you arrogant people who want to throw me off and my son off, you who want nothing to do with me, I'm going to make it so you bow down in front of him, you bow the knee to him, he's going to break you with a rod of iron, and you are going to do obeisance in front of him with your face in the dirt, and that's going to happen because God said so. You get it? Because the same psalm that said the kings of the earth were going to rise up against Christ, and then the writer, Luke, of the book of Acts, seeing it actually happen in real time, quotes from Psalm 2 in order to say, see, that's happening. That's proof that God predestined all this. Well, then the whole rest of this psalm falls under that same category. This is stuff that God has already established in heaven. So it's already going to happen on earth. And there's no way you can avoid it because God has already predestined it. He has already declared it. It's already going to happen. So what is your part? Kiss the sun. Get down in front of the sun. Do obeisance. Pay homage to the sun. 
And then because this psalm has said so much about the wrath and the anger of God, God shall break them and shatter them like earthenware, and that he's going to terrify them in his fury, knowing all of that, do homage to the Son unless he become angry. So how do you avoid the anger of God? How do you avoid the wrath of God? How do you avoid him terrifying you in his fury? Kiss toward. Kiss toward. That's the answer. Worship Yahweh and his son. Which is in contrast to the kings of the earth saying, we're going to throw off Yahweh and his son. And the only answer is kiss toward. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Because his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a real blessing right there. When God starts pouring out his wrath, you know, we're studying the book of Revelation on Sundays. When the day of the Lord occurs, when the time of tribulation happens, the time of trouble on earth such as never was or ever would be again, how blessed it will be to be in Christ and be preserved from all that. To be kept from the wrath and the fury of God. Because the wrath and the fury of God is already established. It's coming. It's going to happen. It already says so. It's already written down. It's already been prophesied. The wrath of God is coming. Be in Christ. Where do you start? Kiss toward. Do obeisance to the Son. Because his anger will get whipped up. He will break you with a rod of iron. He will punish you. And if he wants to terrify you, he can do it eternally. Kiss the sun. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.